Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I wanted to point your attention to a couple things. Uh, I bought a couple extra copies of this book, uh, Judges for You, by a guy named Timothy Keller. There's one on the bar there, and there's another one here in my hand. Uh, if you'd like to take it, feel free to do so. If you want to put 10 bucks in the offering, or the whatever that thing is called, the black box. Uh, you can do that as well if you just would like to take it. This is a great resource that I would recommend uh, reading along with us as we're going through our study through Judges. Also, it was an exciting week in the life of our church as Juan and Katie welcomed the birth of their new daughter, Ella Louise. Uh, Mom and baby are doing well. And if you hadn't yet, for some reason, heard or signed up yet, there is a meal train uh, to provide the family with a meal. If you'd like more information about that, you can see Kelly. Uh, Kelly's up front here. Uh, But yet at the same time, as we are celebrating new life in the church, it's also a time this week as we're joining Peter and Megan and Marilyn in grieving the loss of Jim Jovanovich, and that service will be held today at 2 p.m. at Grace Church. Uh, If you have the sermon outline there, the announcements are on the back, and the address is listed there for for Grace Church. With that being said, let's look at Judges 4, continuing our study. I've really enjoyed going through Judges so far. I hope you guys have as well. I've uh, been encouraged by seeing the need for Jesus in the story, and been, God has encouraged me through these stories in uh, showing his grace, and I'm experiencing it more deeply and sweetly. I, I hope that is the case for you as well. I do hope as well that this has been a time in which, over the last three weeks, um, the stories of Judges have been a little more relatable and understandable, and hopefully, too, as, as we've laid out uh, this, our study through Judges, looking at those three questions, that this is helping you kind of understand and work through the stories and hopefully the rest of the Old Testament that sometimes can be confusing or hard to understand, that these, these questions in the handout are providing a, a framework or an outline to help you understand what, uh, what the stories are really about. I would bet a lot of stakes if I was a bending man that you could go to Red Robin or to Marine View Espresso or to Anti-Irene's or somewhere in Des Moines, somewhere locally at a coffee shop or lunch, and it would be very unlikely that your server or the person in the room would have read Judges, right? That they would be reading the same thing that we're reading this morning. Okay? I, I, would even, I would even suggest or, or say that uh, even another Christian, it's fairly unlikely that they've opened Judges or studied Judges today or this week, or even in the Old Testament, right? Like how many of us, there's not going to be any shame in here when we are getting into Judges and and opening up our Bibles. Like we noticed as we are turning through the pages of Judges, it was really crisp, right? The pages kind of were like separating from each other. And we realized, oh man, I don't know if I've ever looked at the story. I don't know if these pages have seen the light of day. And that's part of the goal and reason why we wanted to get into Judges was uh, these stories that although are about ancient Israelites 3,000 years ago. They're not just some sort of far-off, unrelatable, distant stories that they can become our stories. And in a lot of ways, these stories reflect the human condition, the human heart, our propensity and incline to turn away from God. And, and Judges has uh, a word for us this morning. Right, so I hope that as you guys have been interacting with coworkers and neighbors and people are saying, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And you say, well, I gathered with my church and we're going through the book of Judges. And they say, judges, what's that about? And you can tell them, right? Anyone have that opportunity? Okay, maybe uh, this is what judges is about, right? 
And maybe we need to have some testimony time so that we can start practicing what Judges is about. Judges is a collection of stories that shows what happens when people forsake God, when people do what's right in their own eyes, when they, when they judge good and evil for themselves and they re- reject God. It shows that oppression and slavery and human flourishing does not happen when we turn away from God. Yet, God in his grace, again and again, hears the cries of his people, and he sends these people named Judges to deliver his people. Again and again, he's gracious with his people. And, and all of these Judges point to an ultimate judge, a final judge, a deliverer named Jesus. And Jesus comes as that ultimate deliverer, that one to all the Judges point to save his people. And he gives his people a new heart. He gives them new hope. And this same Jesus, who has changed my life, given me new hope and joy and forgiveness of sins, he gives that to all who would come to him and turn from themselves, turn from their rebellion, their trust in themselves, doing what's right in their own eyes. They would come and and turn and trust in Jesus. He offers that same forgiveness. That is, hopefully, what we are learning to say when people ask us, what is Judges about? So let's uh, get a volunteer and have that person come up and give us a, a summary of that. Peter, want to come forward? All right, but ser- I'm being serious here, right? Hopefully, as we're learning through Judges, I know we've only been only at it three weeks now, but we're learning the overall story and how it all points to Jesus, right? That's what we're looking at, our need for a Savior. Okay, so when someone asks you what you did this weekend, what are you going to say? Went through Judges 4. And what's Judges 4 about? Judges 4 is another story of our need for a Savior, Judges is another story of our need for salvation. So if you haven't yet, uh, open with me to Judges 4. We're looking at the whole chapter this morning, looking at the story of Deborah and Barak. The story opens in verse 1 by saying, The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this phrase is going to be repetitious. We've already seen this phrase in the story of Ehud. We've seen this story in the story of Othniel. This is kind of the theme music, if you will, of what starts these stories. Okay, the, the theme song. Here we go again. Because the judge's cycle is about to start. So there's the Israelites sin against God. Soon then they're oppressed. They're oppressed by this guy named uh, Jabin, who is king of Canaan, similar to how the people were oppressed before. And then from this oppression, the people cry out to God. God raises up a judge. He delivers them, they have peace, and then we'll see the same thing in the next story. Okay, this cycle all the way through Judges. This is the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. And Jabin had this commander named Sisera who lived in that word that Kerry pronounced. I'm so glad that you pronounced that so well, Kerry. Hashereth Hagoyim. And the people cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots. That's important. We'll come back to that. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, this is the first time that an adjective is given to the oppression that the Israelites felt, cruelly. And this is also the longest time in which the Israelites had been oppressed, 20 years. And from this oppression, the people cry out to God for help. And then we're introduced to this prophetess named Deborah. It says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidith, was judging Israel at the time. Now, a prophetess or a prophet was a spokesperson for God, a person who served as a voice piece that spoke on God's behalf. That, that's what Deborah was doing. So she calls this guy named Barak, and from as God's spokesperson, she says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Barak, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of 
Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera. I will lure Sisera out. And I will have him meet you at the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. This word from the Lord that comes from God through Deborah to Barak saying, hey, Barak, gather your troops, deploy them, meet at this place. Sisera is going to come at this place at this time, and I'm going to deliver him into your hand. Got it? Let's do it. Go. And then Barak says in verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, how many of you maybe have heard a sermon on this passage before? Anyone? Okay, sometimes this passage is told, and in verse 8 and 9, it can be told uh, when Barak says, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I will not go. And then Deborah responds in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Okay, I've been taught and, and understood this passage to mean that this is kind of a punishment, that Barak is given this command from Deborah, okay, and although Barak's name means lightning, he hesitates. So he, he doesn't do it immediately. And, and because of that, that hesitation, Deborah says in verse 9, because, nevertheless, the road in which you are going will not lead to your glory. So verse 9 is kind of almost a punishment uh, because of what of the hesitation of Barak. That's one way to look at it. But yet, as I was studying, there was another way that was introduced. And this is a way that says, when Barak says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. That's Barak's way of saying, Deborah, you are uh, the voice person, the spokesperson of God. You, I want to honor you and God. You're kind of representing the word of God. If you're not going with me, I'm not going. Okay, it's, it's kind of Barak's conviction that unless God is with him and going, he's not going to go. It, it demonstrates an act of faith, not hesitation. And also in verse 9, when it says, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, the way that the original language is worded could literally mean this. But your honor will not be on the way you are going. So it's not necessarily that because Barak hesitates, which may not be the case, that he's punished, this might simply just be a, a prophecy, something that's foretold of this adventure you're about to go on, it's not going to lead to your glory which might again uh, demonstrate a great faith that Barak had, which, which may make more sense too when we see that Barak is listed in Hebrews 11, which has been called kind of the, the hall of faith, or there's a list of names of people who demonstrated great faith, and Barak is in there. Okay? I kind of favor that, that second understanding, that it's not a hesitation, it's not a punishment, it's, it's simply a foretelling of what is about to happen, but regardless of what it, what it might mean. Okay, regardless of Barak's motives are, are the punishment, the point is that God's word is prophesied that Sisera will be delivered to the hands of a woman. Okay, and we'll see from the end of this story that Barak and Deborah aren't really even the main characters in this story. God is. Okay, God is the hero. God is the one that this story is ultimately about. But when it says there in verse 9, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, the story is kind of leading to an assumption. It's setting up an expectation that this will in fact be Deborah. But the story invites us to keep going. It says, Barak went out uh, with Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels. Deborah goes with him. And then there's kind of this interesting digression of thought that seemingly comes up out of nowhere in verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak 
in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, and this is important. It's introducing what will uh, be a kind of twist at the end of what goes down uh, in regards to this guy named Hebert, Heber the Kenite. And it says in verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, uh, he called for his chariots, these 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him went up. And this is important because uh, when Barak or when Sisera sees Barak go up to Mount Tabor, uh, it's important to know a little bit about the geography and the topography of, of what was happening here. Because when Sisera sees Barak go up to this mountain, that's basically a suicide mission. Because Mount Tabor was a, a rounded hillock. It was a large mound that, that was in the middle of a plain. So you could surround it on all sides. There would be no escape. Okay, so this was an easy way. Sisera's thinking, oh man, this is, this is sweet. This is just basically being handed on a silver platter. I can Surround these guys on this mountain. I'm just going to mow them down in my chariots and easy, easy win. Okay, this is, this is it. This is my moment. I'm going to capitalize on that. It's, it's also important to keep in mind or to know that these 900 chariots compared to 10,000 men, the 900 chariots would always win. Okay, when, we, when we hear 900 versus 10,000, we might think, man, 10,000 people versus 900 chariots, the chariots don't have no chance. But these chariots were were advanced kind of military machines. It would be a modern-day equivalent of a tank, okay? So these, these would have just mowed down these, these Israelites in the open plain. So for Sisera, this is, there's no chance that he's going to lose to Barak. He's going to surround him on the mountain. They're going to mow him down, and, and there go the Israelites. But from God speaks to Deborah, and Deborah says to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? That's important. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And notice verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera. The word routed means destroyed. Does away with Sisera. All his chariots before Barak by the edge of the sword. This might have been to the fact that we, we learn in Judges 5 that God sends this rain. And it might have caused a flash flood uh, in this, this river, which would have caused this chari- the chariots to be stuck in the mud. They would have caused to be kind of disabled, immobilized, which would have allowed the Israelites to, to take out these chariots. But it's important to know that the Lord routed Sisera. He is the one who routes Sisera. So Sisera is, is destroyed. All the army is, is taken by the edge of the sword. Not a man is left. And Sisera escapes on foot to the tent of Jael. Here comes Heber. He's back into the story from verse 11. So Jael, which is Heber's wife, comes out and he greets him at this tent. It tells us that Heber and Jabin, who was Sisera's boss, the king, had a peace. Okay, so for Sisera, this is a, a sanctuary, a safe haven. Right? This, this man, Heber, Jael's wife, has peace with Jabin. I'm going to hang out here, lay low. He even tells Jael to lie. And says, if anyone comes to the tent, you know, tell them that no one's in here. Uh, Jael kind of invites him in. She says, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside, which is another way of saying, come in, my Lord, come in. And she covers him with a rug, which is another way of saying a, a blanket. And he asked her, uh, Jael, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And again, she asked him to lie. So he says, stand at the tent of the opening, the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. And then verse 21 happens. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. 
Now, in those times, a 10-peg wouldn't be that five to six-inch plastic peg that we hammer into the ground. The 10-peg in this day would have been a large wooden spike. Okay, and, and in these times, uh, the setting up and taking down of tents was considered a woman's job. So this is kind of everyday uh, kind of tools that she has, a 10-peg and a hammer. And she would have had a steady hand and a, and a, a forceful hand because it says she, she went in softly, she takes this peg into his temple, and she drives it into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And maybe, uh, you know, a, kind of an, an ironic way or details that, you know, maybe don't need to be included. I think it's almost kind of a joke, like those three words. He's got a temple, he's got a tent peg driven through his temple into the ground, and then it says, so he died. <laughs> and, it seems a little superfluous, doesn't it? Yeah. So he died. And Barak, uh, who was pursuing Sisera, Jael comes out to the tent and says, come, I will show you the man you're seeking. So he went to the tent and there lay Sisera dead. And this is very similar to how the guards come in and find Ehud dead. It says, there lay Ehud dead. Very similar to how the, uh, Barak comes and sees Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel and the hand of of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Okay. Now, when I was studying through this, the story seems pretty straightforward until what do you do with this last section of the tent peg? They was keep throwing me for a loop. Why is this in here? It seems like there's manipulation, there's murder, there's deceit, there's betrayal. What is going down here? How do we understand this story? Especially when you think about uh, in, in this in this time, in the kind of ancient Near Eastern hospitality, jail's going against everything that would be normal. She had a peace with Jabin. Her husband had a peace with this tribe. So to welcome in him, to give him something to drink and eat and to, you know, give him rest and then betray him by coming in with a tent peg. I mean, forget the peace, even about hospitality, right? That's not very hospitable. Invite your guests to come in for a nap, and you drive a tent peg through their temple? I think this story is similar to the story of Ehud, and it shows that God humiliates his, the oppressive of us, his people. We learn later in, in Judges 5 that Cicero was not a good man. He, he was maybe known to abuse and rape women. So it's ironic the fact that he died at the hands of a woman. It's kind of sweet justice, if you will. I think this shows another form of irony and justice and humiliation that Sisera died. It's not necessarily saying that model Jael's example. Okay, it's not, the, the story is not prescriptive in that way. It's, it's descriptive. But it's showing how uh, God gets the glory and God's purposes will never fail. And that leads us to answer that first question. The first question in our handout in which we're seeking to answer every week from the story, which is, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And it shows, I think, that God's word is faithful and his word will always come true. That's the big takeaway from the story. The story is straightforward. The word of God is completely trustworthy. His word will not be frustrated. It will always be carried out. God's word never fails. Notice in verse 7, 
God promises through Deborah that Barak, that to Barak that he would lure Sisera out to the river Kishon. And verse 13, where does Sisera come? To the exact place that God promised, the river Kishon. Kishon. It says in verse 15 that the Lord routes the army. Notice again another promise. God promised that Sisera would be delivered into the hands of a woman in verse 9. Verse 21, Sisera falls to the hands of a woman. And even in the end of a kind of bizarre twist at the end there with a tent peg and the betrayal and Jael's husband, or Jael breaking the trust of her husband and that peace that she had, it seems like the only explanation from this story and the way this story went down is to, again, show the trustworthiness and the reality that God's word always comes true. Uh, I read this week from a guy named Lawson Stone in his commentary that obedience to the divine word triggers a completely unpredictable chain of events that culminates in an act of betrayal that sets the stage for God's victory of God's people over Jabin. The literary flow of the story accentuates both the certainty of God's word being fulfilled and the utter unpredictability of the instruments through which it is fulfilled. In other words, the only explanation for the end of the story going down the way it does is it shows this kind of outlandish way that God's word comes true, that God's word is not frustrated. Judges 4 shows us that God is faithful to his word, that when he promises salvation, he will see it to completion. Shows that in his good and perfect timing, he sees his promises through. God's will will not fail. His word will not fail. It will be accomplished. And that leads us to this answering the second question of when we look at this story of Barak and Deborah in Judges 4, how does it connect with the larger story of the Bible? How does this story of promised salvation being fulfilled through a prophecy reign true in the larger story of the Bible? And this, hopefully, is a question that we can answer quite easily, is it not? When we think about a promised salvation, when we think about... Uh, of deliverance prophesied through prophets. What does this make us, who should this make us think of? Jesus, right? This story, I think, points to Jesus, the one, the promised salvation through the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Hosea, Ezekiel, Zechariah. They all point forward to this promised salvation, this deliverer whose name would be Jesus. And listen to all the prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in a town called Bethlehem. He would be a descendant of David. He would be a light for the nations. He would perform signs of healing. He would come to cut the captives free. He would proclaim good news. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be a suffering servant. He would be portrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be forsaken and pierced. He would be the Passover lamb. He would die. He would be resurrected. He would be our redeemer. He would be the promised one, the promised blessing that's that's given to Adam and Eve and given to Abraham, the one to all the prophets point. Jesus is the supreme deliverer. Jesus is the one to which this promised salvation giving to Deborah ultimately points to. That Jesus is the testimony of all scripture. He's at the center, the focus of God's promised salvation. He's at the, the, the centerpiece, the masterpiece of God's redemption and rescue of his people from the greatest enemy, sin and Satan and death. And we see in the story that nothing happens that God didn't promise. And we see in Jesus that nothing happens to Jesus that he did not 
prophesy about. That all of this happens in line with his word. That should lead to great hope and boldness, should it not? Okay, when we're thinking about now, in light of this, this story, this, this word that we see, that God's word is always true, that we see this ultimately and fully in Jesus, what does this lead us to do? Right? Boldness. Okay, imagine, we know who the final victor will be. We're living in bold faith that Jesus said who he was. He proved it, that he said who he was by raising from the grave. He has already told us what will be the final outcome, that Jesus wins, that all of his people will be gathered together, that nothing's going to frustrate his plan. One day, sin and Satan and death will be finally taken away. I don't think that leaves us in a sense of, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think that leaves us with a, a timid or a scared faith. I think this story shows us that we have bold confidence that God's word is always true. God's word will not fail. Therefore, we live in, in joy and, and peace and boldness, knowing that God's word will always come true. Amen? I hope that's what we're getting from the story, that since God's word is true, that his promises always will be fulfilled. I think what Judges 4 calls us to is an invitation to, in a sense, get in the game. That God has given his people tasks and gifts and assignments, and we have the boldness and the invitation to engage in those. You know, it's often said that, that the church, especially the church in America, can be viewed similar to an American football game. You have a couple people playing on the field. You have a large multitude of people kind of watching. They show up for an event and they leave. They're not really involved. They're not playing in the game. They're simply standing by and, and being spectators. And I haven't said this in a while, but since softball season is around the corner, one of the things that Will says often uh, in coaching the girls that we coach in high school softball is always a participant, never a spectator. I think that's the call of Judges 4. Hey, God is inviting us to, since his word is true, since we have bold confidence that his word will never fail, we can get in the game and do so with joy, with confidence, and with assurance that he, that he will not fail. Amen? I wanted to close by reading from Romans 8. For our encouragement and invitation to pursue the mission of God, to uh, get involved with boldness. I pray that Romans 8 will encourage us and inspire us to worship God. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do we believe that? More than conquerors. We read a story like Judges and, and, and hear a story of Barak routing these chariots. And it can seem distant, can't it? The last time I saw a chariot was in a movie. I can't remember the last time I took up my sword and went to battle. Yet God says we are more than conquerors. Now, a couple of things I think we should clue into that. What does it mean that we're conquerors? What does it mean that we are warriors or at battle? There is a spiritual enemy. We're not at war with flesh and blood. We're at war with principalities and powers, present darkness. This was not prepared in my notes, but I think what this cues us in on is the reality that we have to be alert. That our greatest enemy is not necessarily 900 chariots that will surround us on a hill and rout us. Our greatest enemy, I think, is that of complacency, is that of callousness? Is that of temptation? Is that of areas in our life in which we are being blinded and led astray and we don't even know it? Another thing that we can learn from the story is that Barak will not go to battle without Deborah. And like I said, I lean more to that second understanding that it wasn't a rebuke, it was a prophecy. And I think what we can take from this is that we cannot go to battle without the word of God. And I think it's important for us to keep these realities in mind. Because we come to judges and we say, cool story, chariots, tent pegs, what's next? Are we being sober-minded and alert in this reality that we are in a battle? It might not be against the king of Canaan, the king of Moab. It might not be against Cushan with Tham. It's against Satan and sin and sleepiness, and callousness, and believing that we don't really have to be committed to this. We don't really need this to live in this world. We don't really need this to go to battle. I pray that our convictions, and this is, we need this. If we're not going to battle with this, we got nothing. The Lord's not going with us, right? We might, we might as well have that kind of same conviction, do we have that about the scriptures? I'm not going to battle without God's word with me. Yes, I'm more than a conqueror, but I'm not going to be an arrogant, flippant, you know, here you go, Satan, take your best shot. I'm not going to read the word. I'm not really going to be committed to a church. I'm not really going to be accountable to anyone and how I'm doing. Man, let's be committed to this. Let's go with God's word into battle. And let's do so knowing that we are more than conquerors, that, the, that their enemy has been defeated. 
that Jesus has done the work, that he's calling us to invite him as he seeks and pursues the lost, as he proclaims the, the glory of God, as, as he uses us to do that. Would that happen for the joy of those around us and for the glory of God? Amen? Let's pray.